0: Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Story. I'm uh, happy to be here with my friend Drew and Zach. And uh, Drew, welcome back to the show. I've been on your show a couple times since you came on ours, but uh, really looking forward to this conversation as you are now also my Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach.
1: Great. <laughs> right. yeah, it, it's been a while since I've done yours, so it's nice to uh, pay back the favor or at least uh, try to even out the karma.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So I have a whole bunch of uh, things I want to talk to you about, but the first is talk about the transition for your podcast, right? It's gone a new direction. You've, uh, you've embarked on a whole new journey. You're, it's going amazingly well and I'm really blessed to have been on it a few times, but talk about that because we we weren't talking about that last time you were on the show.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I had a podcast for a while, about a little less than a year that I was doing just for my jujitsu meme page called the Because Jitsu podcast. So I'd talk about jujitsu and the news and kind of how it pertained and back and forth, and we'd be just kind of topical stuff around the sport. Um, that started becoming less and less interesting to me. Maybe less, not less interesting, but more things became more interesting. Um, Well, all of the things that were going on in both my life as well as the world writ large around us were changing at this breakneck speed that really, like, I had to talk about, which was a catch-22 because you're not supposed to talk about it. It's just, like, hilarious, lethal yes. elephant in the yes. room where you're like, do I risk my entire reputation and the the platform that I've built and the friends and family that I have, et cetera, et cetera, to actually talk about the things that matter the most in the way that I'm going to talk about them, which is honestly. And I made that decision finally. It w- It was not... Uh, a flip of a switch kind of thing. This took a long time to build myself up to thinking that, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. Yes, it is worth it. And let the blowback and fallout be what it may. And so I did. And I ended up rebranding that podcast into what is now the social disorder podcast, where I've been very active on that since about the 13th of uh, February was the first one and we're at coming up on 70 episodes now in four months. So Which it's going really good. Incredible
0: feat for those who don't know how incredible it is. Zach and I could attest that it is an incredible feat. <laughs> 70 podcasts yes, in that time frame is wild.
2: Yes. To yeah. that, I say, holy shit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I had it in my mind that I wanted to just get some stuff out there to begin with, but then when I saw the traction that it was getting, and this isn't just like a, a numbers thing like everybody on social media likes to see good numbers but to me it was more like at least i'm not being deplatformed for this <laughs> and some people are listening so it's worth it in that way and i i got a bunch of stuff off my chest and got a bunch of topics out there and then i decided shortly after that point not only is this worth doing but if i'm going to do this i'm going to do it like i'm a professional and so I'm gonna do it professionally until I become a professional at it. And to me, being a professional is doing it every weekday. So that's that's my goal is do at least one podcast every Monday through Friday. And that's been what the the average has been.
0: And it's uh, it's growing at incredible rates. You're getting great guests on. You have just had Derek Fildebrandt on, who we love having on here. You got Eddie Bravo coming on.
1: That will be the end of the month.
0: Yeah, you've uh, you've had some great guests, Dr. McCullough. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how you've approached this, like you approached jujitsu, like you approached your NFT. I love. I think one of the things I'm enjoying most of learning from you is that you know how to learn things. You you become a master of learning things. And you and yeah, I talked yeah. about this off podcast, but like, I want I'd love if you could share with the listeners, like. How are you approaching this and and how is your approach to life one of learning?
1: Well, this is the part that people get wrong often is they think that learning is just winning. And so if you aren't winning right away, then you're doing it wrong and you should probably give up and it's probably not for you. And they forget or they neglect to realize that actually, if you're, if you're, honestly wanting to learn. If you have a driven intention to learn something, you have to be ready to fail a lot. And so that's been the biggest takeaway from jujitsu, from NFTs, from everything in life that I've gone through in the last couple of years has been failure after failure after failure, but I'm failing forward because I know that the failure isn't the end of the game. That's just the next play. You know, and it's it's the battle, not the war. you got to stay in the war. And, you know, this has been the driving force behind every success I've ever had in life, to be honest. And there are many and varied in very strange ways, but the, the through line is exactly that, is that I'm willing to fail. I don't take it personally, and I just continue as if that's a data point to move forward on.
0: So this philosophy of life is something that Zach and I have begun to encounter regularly from, guess what? all the successful people we have on the podcast there's this theme zach do you want to kind of lay it out a bit so that maybe we can get out of drew another point in this because i i think what you're talking about Drew, maybe the most important and most lacking thing in culture period right now
2: yeah if if i were to speculate for if i were to elaborate on what i hear drew saying it's multifaceted right um the the first and the first thing that i see is um personal responsibility the willingness to take up the mantle and say i will take it upon my own shoulders to try this thing and then along with that the willingness to be uncomfortable through being bad at something, right? The willingness to take on a new task that you don't understand fully and say, the only way that I'm going to understand this fully is if I take on the personal responsibility to learn it for myself and not outsource that experience to anyone else and to be willing to navigate the bumps that, that come from that. Is, is that basically what you were getting at, David?
0: Yeah, and I just want I just want Drew to keep riffing on this because I think this singular point literally is the most important.
1: Yeah, there was something that Zach mentioned there that really I think is the stopping block for most people that prevents them from being able to start that, that successive series of failure and wins and failure and wins and failure and failure and failure and wins is the actual first step. I think that's where most people stop because people get in their head and they overanalyze and they over uh, psychoanalyze the situation. And, And the thing with humans is that we are hardwired to look for the worst case scenario first because that's important. It's important to know what is the worst possible thing that can happen. The problem is a lot of people think that that is most likely to happen and it's actually the inverse. It's the least likely to happen. It's usually a very slim probability that everything will go as terribly as you think it will. And so there's been um, something that has changed in my mind. and it, Thankfully for me in my story is it happened earlier in life. I don't know if I've told you this story on the podcast or not, but I was like 12 years old when I had this first experience where I had to literally step outside my comfort zone when I went off uh, a platform diving board at a wave, at a wave pool. And It was terrifying to me. I was a small kid growing up, so I was short to begin with. And going off a five-meter cement platform was like it looked like death. It looked like I was going to die and I saw all my friends doing it and they were having fun and they were coaxing me into doing it. And I was like, fine. I I sort of bowed to the peer pressure to to get up there. But then it was up to me at that point to look at the edge of this thing. And I walked to the edge of the platform. I look down and I see the entire earth below me and I can see eagles flying in between me and the water and infinity below. Right. Um, and so there's no common sense that would dictate that I should step off that edge. In fact, all of it was screaming back down, but I'm looking behind me and I see the stairs leading back down. I, I tell myself there is 0% chance I'm walking back down those stairs in shame. I'm not gonna do it. So I said, how do I, how do I convince myself to take this first step? Which is really in that case, the only step necessary. And oftentimes it is the only step necessary to just start the process. And I said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna walk up to the edge, I'm going to step one foot over and then i'm going to step the second foot over and then i can make all my regrets on the way down <laughs> that's what i did i literally just, I just it was the most ungraceful way i just literally walked off like a zombie <laughs> and hit the water and had a ton of fun and did it about 20 more times that day but i've used that as an analogy in many different times and like poignantly i think of that time specifically i'm like look let me just try it. And it's gotten easier. It's it's like a skill set that you build. The more you do it, it's like, I'm not only willing to fail, but I bet you there's some benefit on the other end of this. And I'm more curious about the benefit than I am worried about the failure. Ooh, oh, I
2: love that. More, more curious. curious about the
0: benefit than worried about the failure. Yeah.
2: So um, why don't you take that example and then juxtapose that to how you approached this podcast project of yours?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing is I don't have to explain to you guys or really probably to anybody listening to this Isle of podcast that there are a lot of dangerous topics these days that people um, lose everything over their reputation, their job, their uh, family, their friends, and a lot of that was up for grabs by making this decision. So that was the the common sense screaming in my brain that right. I should do this. But the benefit that I saw, that I perceived on the other end of this, it, it wasn't personal. To be honest, like I've done nothing but lose money on this podcast and lose friends and contacts and everything else. But the benefit was not like a strictly capitalist one of like, this is going to be great for me. You know, what it was is I think that this can be literally life-changing for other people, perhaps even life-preserving, because there are topics that we're not allowed to talk about right now that are getting people killed. Like, let's just be straight up honest about this. Um, I, I, I brought up my sister in one of my podcasts who was vaccine injured, who lost the use of her legs after one shot. And she yes. wasn't allowed to talk about it for months. She was gaslit for months by doctors who were running endless tests to try to prove it was anything but the vaccine. So we know what the, the situation is out there as far as how um, unbelieved we're going to be talking yeah. about a lot of this stuff, but only so far. And this was the test is I believe that it was only so far as the mainstream was concerned. I felt like there is a groundswelling of uh, people who are self-censoring that just need somebody to speak for them. And so mm-hmm. I kind of decided that it was worth my... Um, position on social media to risk that for their benefit and that's really what it is I don't want to toot my own horn or anything but it was it came from altruistic intentions and it still continues because of that I believe I honestly truly believe it's so important that I'm willing to risk a lot and I've I have risked a lot I've lost a lot as well I I don't need to go into the details but there are people that don't talk to me anymore there are people that send me nasty messages and yeah. You know, um, I get blocked and shadow banned a lot on social media. Whereas I make all of my income to support my six-person family. So I mean, this was not a trite or or trivial decision to make, but I I regret it not even for one second.
0: Yeah, yeah. and 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 on the on the flip side, what have you gained from it now that you've got now that you now that you have stepped off the edge and you and you're falling, and then you've you've been in the pool. What have you learned?
1: Well, this is the thing is, uh, like I said, this is a skill set that I've built over time over many different uh, important moments to make that similar decision that I believe the benefit is better on the other end of this no man's land. And I was right. it's, It's clear that there is... A shift in the paradigm coming. And I think it, we all kind of sensed it with our spidey senses that yeah. this can't continue, this can't go on. The pendulum's being pushed synthetically so far to one direction that it's just gonna take one slip I'm and it's gonna crash in the other direction. And I believe that not only did I time that well, um, but I did see that one coming. And I should say, like the benefit that I'm seeing already is giant doors are swinging open for me. Because like I said, there's people just waiting for somebody to be their voice. Like I'm getting uh, as many bad messages and DMS as I'm getting, I'm getting 10 times as many um, good ones as well as people like, like really honestly thanking me for what I'm doing and telling me not to stop. And it's, it's edifying, to be honest, to the soul, to be able to like interact with people on a personal level like that, and know that this this is what you thought it was. You you weren't wrong in this. Um, I'm still learning as I go, but like I believe that by the end of this year, this will be my full time career because it's just oh, so yeah. much potential there that I kind of assumed and and supposed and hoped that it was there. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely failing forward on this one. I'll put it that way.
0: <laughs> well, that's the only way to go forward, right? Yeah, it's a fail.
2: I just want to say, um, because obviously we're we're kind of in, you know, we, we both run these sort of podcasts that um, talk about the things that we should not talk about, right? And I just want to echo what you said, like the, the positivity that we see vastly outweighs the negativity that we see. And what I've really enjoyed through this process is one, I feel like we are cultivating a community of people who just want to know what is real and mm. that's a really exciting experience and alongside of that the 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 demographic of people that are coming to this community is so unbelievably wide and diverse and it's not just the racists and misogynists here it's <laughs> it's crazy like i the, people from all walks of life that i would have never thought would take the position that i have taken through this you know through this situation there's so many people who are, who are coming over the woodwork saying, man, like, like, thank you for saying what you say. Like, I thought this too, but like, I just didn't know what to say or how to say it or where to say it, or, you know, and there it's, it, it's everyone. It's not just a small group of people. It is everyone. And every day there's more of them. And I think that's an exciting movement with our, within our country because, um, we're just at the cusp of that and it's only going to get better.
0: You guys want to know a cool stat? We're hear. the least boosted country in the G7.
1: Yeah, I saw them decrying that in Parliament. I was like, go Canada. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I, read, I read a stat in the Montreal Gazette yesterday, actually on today's podcast, if you're if you're listening, where um they stated that only 57.4% of Canadians are considered boosted. But I read a, another one on that. I don't know how, how much to take these numbers for what they are, but if you do, if you take them as honest stats, which is a kind of a tricky, slippery thing these days, <laughs> I never I never realized until this last couple of years how much math and statistics can lie. <laughs> it depends on oh, how, man, it's, who's it's, running well, them and uh, where they their numbers. Yeah, but, Churchill
0: said lies, damn lies, statistics. I think it like <laughs> yeah, there you
1: go. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can absolutely prop up whatever argument you want with math. And because it's a, quote, hard science, it must be true. But anyways, the stats on this article uh, said 57.4% boosted. But I was surprised to see that they have raised the double vaccinated numbers to 90.3%. So we, as unvaccinated people, are under double digits now, as far as that's concerned. If that's true, we're like we're under 10% now left in Canada, which is crazy. And I don't, I say this all the time on the podcast that I don't, I try as much as possible to, to take away from the team mentality of Vax versus unvax because that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what they've been playing back and forth with this uh, gaslighting as well as demonizing of one tribe or one people or one type of thing, you know, that's bullshit to begin with. But um, the reason why that's uh, important to me and and it should be important to everybody, vaxxed and unvaxxed, is that what the unvaccinated represent is the control of this whole experiment. And so if we don't have a control to compare against, then it's impossible to know how the experiment is going. And I I don't believe that that's not by design. If at the very least, um, people who it benefits being big pharma and politicians and mainstream media and everybody propping this whole experiment up, um, it's at the very least a, a a happy coincidence that they don't have to compare against a, a large group of people anymore. But I'm curious to see on that note, as we move forward into the next fall and winter coming up that everybody is is talking about, don't, don't forget the fall is coming, we're not out of the pandemic yet. I'm curious to see what their scapegoat is going to be if there's like less than 10% of people to blame it on this time.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> I yeah. I personally think um and we had a uh, we had another guest on um uh, about a week or so ago. Um she brought up an int- interesting perspective. She said, "Well, if they didn't tell the truth about the deaths, Meaning, you know, they, they, they had to come out eventually when they they took enough heat and say, oh, you know what? So about, you know, 40, only 49 percent of the deaths that we've reported are directly due to COVID and the other 51 percent are actually due to other things. But they just happened to have COVID. Whoops, sorry, we made a mistake. Like, why would they why would they tell the truth about the vaccine numbers when they're trying to push people into doing it? Right. So I this is entirely anecdotal, but I think they're full of shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's objective at this point. Anybody who looks is like there's yeah. this funny term that people use as a pejorative now. It's like, oh, you do your own research, lol 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 It's like, yeah, where do you get your news? <laughs> oh, from, from the news, so you don't do your own research, but you're you're the smart one. Okay, right. I, yeah, you,
2: they they, uh, they say it as a this derogatory thing, like, oh, you right. take the onus on yourself to
1: look at the information. You must oh, be you stupid. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. That's where we're at. But it's really got <laughs> to this point where um, uh, one of the term term de jour of the last year has been uh, mass formation psychosis, right? Yeah. So this is yeah. this is an idea that's been propagated and um, popularized by Matthias Desmet um, out of I think he's Belgium, Belgium. or somewhere. Around yeah, there. Belgium. Yeah, and uh, he the easiest way to understand this is there is a dynamic among masses where the vast majority of them are basically up for grabs. And there's a small minority on one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum that are fighting over the control of those masses. And what's interesting when he talks about it and he goes into all sorts of detail, he's got a book coming out. It's actually, it's already printed um, in Dutch, but I believe the English one is coming out this year. I'm looking forward to getting that. Um, And one of the interesting details of that that paradigm is that you said most of the people, the mass in the middle, let's say it's 80%. You got 10% on one end, 10% on the other end, they're fighting over the 80% in the middle, is that they actually want to be told what is real? They want to be told what's true. They're not willing to do the work to figure it out. They're looking to people to tell them. Which, when you have a bullhorn the size of the CBC and the CTV and every every type of captured media out there the government is going to prop up, and you've got Colbert that has like dancing vaccine uh syringes, you know, it's like everywhere <laughs> you look is like, oh well, these are the people we trust. This is Hollywood, they wouldn't lie yeah. to us. This these is this the is government. These, they are these are our heroes, these are our yeah. They, they, they co-opt themselves into this mainstream uh, ideology of these are everybody who we love and hold dear. So why would they tell us all the wrong thing at the same time? You must be wrong. Meanwhile, they've been told what to think. They've not done their own research. And so you look crazy because there's that, that thing that's like, okay, if, if you think everybody else in the room is crazy, chances are you're the crazy one. But that's the way it looks in mass formation. Yes, psychosis.
0: yes true, true.
1: Have you read Doctor McCullough's book and John Leake's? Uh, I have it on order. I should have it here in a couple of days.
2: I'm about halfway through it. We'll uh, we'll have to ch- chat about that. You, you just mentioned that he was on the show. Um, yeah, yeah. So this this idea of of mass formation and psychosis. Why don't we? Why don't you just go ahead and give a brief like detail of of what exactly that looks like? Maybe playing out in our own country for for the people listening who aren't as familiar with the concept as the three of us here.
1: Yeah, it's really important. It's a very important concept to understand because it gives a lens to what we're seeing in the world, not just the country. The country Canada is a very um, direct version of it. It's very clear to see. There's other countries where it's less clear, but it can become obvious as you look through that lens. And one of the easiest analogies that I've heard that I use to explain to people how this dynamic works um, was one that I believe Brett Weinstein brought up on the Dark Horse podcast once. And he said, okay, if you think of this in medieval terms, we're going on a witch hunt. There's a witch hunt going on. We're going to go find some witches. So when you start a witch hunt, you've got a small amount of people, say it's the church, that, you know, a few deacons or some bishops that are saying, we're going on a witch hunt because there's witches. Uh, Most of the people, the rest of the society, don't really care one way or the other there's like okay if there's witches get them if there's not I don't really care like I was fine before I knew that there was witches it doesn't matter to me and then there's a small amount that are like no this is wrong this is incorrect this is uh like observably cruel and you're doing damage to society by doing it and that's the other small percent and they by definition become the witches so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where you just need to start a witch hunt and anybody who says there's no witches are the witches
2: Ha. Right. Ah, oh, that's, that's so good. A, that's a really good of, way of putting it. I hadn't heard wow. it described that
1: way. Bless Brett Weinstein. Bless <laughs> that man. He's an <laughs> analogy machine. If he's good for anything, it's like endless beautiful analogies.
2: <laughs> oh. oh my goodness! I uh, I first Joe, ran in sorry, go ahead, David. No, no, go go. I was just saying I first ran into him on the Joe Rogan podcast when I forget which doctor he was on with, but they were talking about ivermectin,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I was like, "Where has this man been?" Yeah. where has he been my whole life
1: <laughs> but he's, he's i would, I would highly suggest his podcast he's, yeah, very, he's good. very good yeah the yeah, dark horse
2: podcast for anyone who doesn't know it you need to know it it is uh it's run by two evolutionary biologists Bre- brett weinstein and his wife heather Hying, and um they are way smarter than david and i and uh there's
1: a couple of his podcasts here recently one with uh dr robert malone as well as uh a man i believe his name was dr gerrit von, von der Borsch, uh dutch i believe but both of them very very well in the know and had some incredible insights into uh not only the disease the application of the virus the vaccines and but how it plays into society and it was that that uh, former one uh, dr gerrit who brought up the idea that Maybe the only way out of this is through unvaccinated people, because the problem is that and not to go too deep into the weeds on this, because it gets very technical. And I suggest that people listen to that podcast, get the whole story. But uh, again, leave it to Brett to to come up with an amazing analogy. he said, essentially, the way that the science works out that we know at this point is that anybody that was double vaccinated or more um, have think of it as a port has been added to their hardware where there is a port that gives easy access for Omicron to come in. And the problem is that even if they change the vaccine to be an Omicron vaccine, which they're trying to do, but they're failing because the port that they've already installed for this Wuhan variation that every single mRNA out there has in it and, and adeno vector vaccines, they're all using the Wuhan strain. Um, This port has been put into their system so strong. It's been biased their, their, um, their antibody reaction so strong that they just don't see the Omicron version anymore. It allows this immediate pathway into their system. And the only people who don't have this pathway are the people who didn't get the vaccines. And so, like, realistically, this uh, doctor was saying the only way we can reach a usable, actionable version of herd um, immunity at this point... Is going to be not from vaccinated people quite the opposite which is the problem because we're the minority so there there needs to be some way to get a majority otherwise we're the majority of the population are going to be more and more susceptible over time to this variation and as it mutates into worse ones if it does it's just it's an apocalypse waking waiting to happen in that way because that port exists
0: Mm. so they've just opened up the path to their own demise
1: well, this is the thing. And again, it gets technical and you can get as technical as you want if you're into that to figure it out on that podcast. But to make it simple, it, in the viral sense, there's a there's always a trade-off in evolution. You get this for that. You never get two things for once. They call it, there's no free lunch, right? Yeah. Um, so you pay money for the sandwich or you don't get the sandwich and you keep the money, right? It's one or the other. And in the viral sense, it's a trade-off between transmissibility, and virulence so how deadly is the virus compared to how easy is it to transfer right and yeah. you're you're always giving one to take from another. And so the thing with Omicron is it has become, it's evolved in a way uh, using this port, basically this freebie past this system that's looking for the wrong thing now that has made it hyper transmissible. It's R value, which is the rate of transmission is somewhere in the teens. I think I've seen between 13 and 17 to one. Is it really that is,
2: high? It is, wow. which oh. is
1: why it's it's so so
2: just, just pandemic. Just the way that works... Not a scientist, but the way I understand that to work is if it has an R value of 13, you the idea is is that you will infect if you are infected with the virus yourself, you will infect 13 more people on average before you clear the virus from your own bodies. So that's how you rate the the rate of infection in this case.
1: And to put that into perspective, delta, which was considered significantly more uh, transmissible than alpha, was an R value of six. So we're like orders of magnitude worse than that. And they, I mean, the doctors just say at that R value, you just have to assume you're going to get it. Everybody in the world is going to get it. It's, it's worse than the common cold in that way. You're just going to get it eventually. You're not going to be able to duck this forever. So, um, that's that's where Omicron is. It's hyper transmissible, but that we looked at that as actually a good thing because it lowered its virulence to get that transmissible. So it, it become the, it became a very weak version uh, compared to Delta or even to Alpha before that, where it's like. Some people were calling it a wild vaccine, right? It's been no. attenuated so much. It's so weak that you can at least, everybody can beat it now and get some sort of immunity to it, which unfortunately is not the case because of this hardwiring to this other, through the vaccines. They didn't talk about that. But here's the concern that Dr. Uh, Garrett brought up is that this leads to a very unnatural and unfortunate situation where if the version of Omicron that has, a uh, free pass past every vaccinated person's system right now decides at some point through evolutionary pressures to become more virulent instead there's actually no trade-off for it anymore because it already has a free pass that it doesn't deserve. It gets right past for transmissibility's sake. it'll be it'll remain more transmissible than it actually deserves to be because it just slips right past uh, vaccinated people's systems and it can become more virulent then at that point then it's a pandemic of the vaccinated. That's scary. Right. And
2: sorry, is this coming from a Dark Horse podcast episode? Yeah,
1: yeah, okay. a very recent one.
2: Okay, we'll uh, we'll have to link to that in, we'll the, show in notes. the notes. We'll
0: put uh, put which one it is in the notes. Yeah, uh, and, very, and very we don't tough. say these things to scare people. We only say these things so that people are aware that like these are just facts.
2: Mm-hmm. We right. just have to be able to have the conversations, right? We're not yes. we're not trying to scare anyone into anything. We're not trying to be doomsday. We're just trying to talk about what's going on, and I mean those
1: are people who know way more about this sort of thing than we do. <laughs> yeah. right. And it's those people that I I try to source out and try to listen to because they're giving me the other side of the picture. Because look, you can listen to all of the mainstream scientists you want. They all tell you the same thing in almost the same words, which yes. should almost discount well. their opinion. You know what I mean? That was one thing that a lot of scientists have talked about that they they clocked very early. The ones that ended up getting de-venerated over time. Yeah. Is, um, there was a... Uh, very early into the pandemic, there is a conspicuous consensus that never happens in science. In fact, science is such a cutthroat industry by definition, because you're not only trying to disprove everybody else's theories, you're still trying to disprove your own theories to try to get the best version (laughs) of what is real. And all of a sudden, everybody had this immediate consensus on what this thing was when there was no scientific way they possibly could. Mm.
0: Yeah, some of the stuff that you start to hear when you're traveling in the circles that Drew and I have and Zach to a degree as well, we're starting to hear just things that make it very clear, very clear that way more is going on here at the Meet CI. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't address these issues. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is it's possible that the people pushing this in the background that know about the damage that it's doing, and that they're suppressing it, it's possible they believe they're doing this for the good of the world because we're overpopulated, right? They they may be fully and truly convicted that they are doing the right thing because it's beginning to look far too quote unquote evil to not be that, to be not be an ideology. So what do you think of that, Drew? I know that's one of the craziest things I've said on this podcast. uh...
1: (laughs) Well, here's the thing is it's it's a logical path that you walk down where I constantly battle with this in my own mind back and forth and back and forth is, is this just blind capitalism or is this actually a sinister motive? And it really could be logically either or both, but it's something is going on. That is, that's not um, up to face. That's not what it says it is. You know, and I think that's clear again to anybody who even looks remotely um, into what's going on here is at the very least this is crony capitalism gone wild yeah I was I was talking to my wife about uh, capitalism today because I believe that this is the biggest problem we're seeing with an uprise in socialism and communism within uh, first world countries like Canada there's a, a lot of younger uh-huh. generations who who believe deeply in this stuff and I don't believe it's because they believe in communism, as much as they think they do, as much as they disbelieve in what they're seeing is called capitalism. Right. And the problem is what they're seeing is not actual true pure market capitalism. What you're seeing is market manipulated capitalism that has monopolies as well as gatekeepers, as well as captured individuals that that allow things that wouldn't exist in a pure market. They can't, right? We were talking about agriculture and how there's certain um, crops out there that the the actual genetic code for the seed for this type of grain is owned by monsanto and you have to like if you use this you're subject to all this other things and there's all these weird um plays done at the governmental level done at the corporate level that don't they don't actually resent resemble pure capitalism and it's become this thing where it becomes very easy as as a straw man to be like look the, here's your capitalism this is this is what you stand behind I'm like no that isn't actually that's a really bad version of it that's run wild and has no checks on it and i agree that there's a lot that needs to change there but now you want to compare that to what happened in Stalinist Russia? Do we want to go there? Because yeah. that's what we're saying is the better alternative, and you can't say that one doesn't lead to the other. Like if you want to go full communism, we know where that leads. We've seen Mao, we've seen Stalin, we've seen Pot, we've seen all of these examples. It's just Who's the
0: story same again? story over and over again. Hugo Chavez. It's mm-hmm. you know Cuba. It's always the same story. It never changes.
1: The thing is, though, that they've they're in an a uh, an interesting time period geopolitically where there's no good in-person real representation of what's going on with pure communism because like there is no pure communism right. Even in China right now it's a it's a hybrid between capitalism and communism the government is communist but the people are capitalists and they they allow that to exist because their goal is to overtake all the world economies and they need a capitalist driver to do that yes. right
0: yeah um, yeah
1: but they, these people, these ideologues that are wherever they're coming from, whether they're just on the street and they heard something on a podcast, or where they're coming from universities where it's being pushed, um, they don't have an analog to look at in real time for the for the utopia yeah. being preached to. But they do have an immediate analog in real time to the system they're under, which they can obviously point out the problems. Yeah, they're just like
0: there's so many. Yeah, that's fair. That's a really good
2: point. Yeah, hmm. yeah. want to hear something dirty about Monsanto? that I learned in a documentary I watched about it. pardon um, me. talk dirty to me. Me. Oh, talk dirty <laughs> uh, so so talk they dirty to him, Zach. Talk they, dirty to they patented their seed, right? Mm-hmm. So their seed um I think that I think they were talking specifically about a, a strain of corn, right? Is um it grows very effectively, right? So it's been genetically modified to grow very effectively, very quickly, very large. And it also travels well, meaning it pollinates well right so Uh what they do is they go out and they plant a field with their corn their patented corn and then they wait a season and they let that corn travel to other fields and then they go to those other fields and say that's our patented corn in your field and then the option presented is you either have to test all of this corn or you can't use it because we own the patent to it and we're going to sue you and so Mm -hmm. they not only do they grow their own their own corn their own plants but they also actively suppress the growing of ulterior plants just based on the fact that they hold this patent that spreads around. So Mm -hmm. they're crushing competition with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You want to know. So that's one facet of the corn industry that is crony capitalism. Like that's monopoly is a forced monopoly, right? But it gets propped up uh, another way by the government. So that's the corporate level. The corporation is doing this nasty little thing where they, they, uh, actively and aggressively take over other people's crops, even against their will or against their knowledge. <laughs> and it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also the corn industry is a, is a prime example because it's the most subsidized agriculture um, of the U.S. is the U.S. Uh, government has decided that they're going to subsidize corn over every other type of crop. And i forget really? what they're saying, but it's extremely high. It's like 70% or something is subsidized by the government so that they can, because... People always talk about the American diet, right? And yeah. what it really is, is it is propped up by corn in a giant waste. Uh, high fructose corn syrup is in everything, you know. Look at any ingredient on any processed anything from the U.S. and there's corn in there. And that's on purpose. It's not because there's no other alternatives. It's because it's the easiest and cheapest and most robust thing to grow and i've i've driven across the us here in the last year and the number of cornfields down there is baffling in the in the breadbasket quote unquote it's just cornfield after cornfield after cornfield for as far as you can see in all directions and it's not because people love corn so much it's because it's so cheap to grow cuz it's so highly subsidized by the government and then again this that props up this monopoly in monsanto that grows the only corn to grow
0: Wow. And I bet you they have good lobbyists.
1: Oh, I bet they have the best.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why don't we talk about health a little bit since we're talking about food? Um, you're you're a jujitsu guy. You're you're a master at your craft. Um, you were just mentioning before we we hit record here that you just won a competition. What do you feed your body with?
1: <laughs> this isn't gonna be as uh as good as it sounds because here's the thing is as if you're a hyper active athlete. And David can speak to how many calories it takes in a given sparring session to roll jujitsu. Oh, in. yeah,
0: it's exhausting. <laughs> never, it's highly difficult. energy oh,
1: intensive. Oh, yeah. I actually, I I get away with murder when it comes to my diet, because I, I can just burn right through it with my metabolism. So I can probably get away with more than most people who are just lifting some weights to, to stay fit. Um, because I'll burn 3000 calories in a session, you know, so I wow. can go through my, my daily oh, yeah. regimen. <laughs> so, um, that being said though, it is, it's an interesting test tube to, to test what works as far as nutrition and, um, like improvements to that type of system because they're going to be stark, very obvious right away, is if you can improve your output in such a high output environment, then that's probably a really good thing to do. So I, I've got some students who are more into that experiment than I am, because again, uh, another thing you don't know until you do jujitsu is the better you get at it, the less you have to do, <laughs> which is this, this, weird, this weird paradox where like, as you get better, you get like stronger and more energy. It's actually the opposite. You get more efficient and have to burn less energy. Which um, is, is a yes. nasty little trick as black belts like to play.
0: But, um, <laughs> but yeah. when you're fighting other black belts, you have to bur- you you end up burning a lot of energy.
1: Yes. Yeah, so so that's where it all comes back is eventually it comes down to yeah, your fuel source is going to be a difference maker the closer your skill set gets to the person you're competing against. And that being said, um I've I've seen a lot of benefit for high protein and high carb. And high carb is kind of like used to to fuel fast energy so for training sessions people will carb load before they do it before tournaments they'll carb load but when they're just like the majority of their diet will be high protein to try to um Regulate and improve their their muscle musculature, right? I've seen a lot of people who are on like vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian diets that have a harder time with jujitsu because they don't have the ready fast energy that the carbs bring, as well as their muscles break down and take longer to to um, rebuild without like that red meats protein that's uh, right. other people are getting. So I guess I mean this is all anecdotal at this point. I'm not considered a, a nutritionist by any means, but really your nutrition should represent your lifestyle. And, and it does in a way it mirrors exactly what you're eating, right? your body will show you what you're eating. Um, and then your, your lifestyle, the effectiveness of it will be mirrored by the fuel you're giving to run that type of exercise.
2: Right. Um, okay. So why don't we talk about training then? Um, you're a black belt. How often do you train?
1: Um, I used to when I had a full-time gym, which is a whole different story. uh, I used to train. I was either teaching and or training 17 times a week. It was often because that was my full-time job. I was at the gym at noon and I wouldn't come home till 10. So every day, 10 hours, six days a week. Uh, Now that I don't have a full-time gym, I'm going about three times a week, but I'll still get like six-ish hours of training out of that, which is enough to keep me active. Um, as well as improving, which is important.
0: What do you? Um, I'm interested in this. So once you are a black belt, do you? Is it kind of like riding a bike? Like is, you can't just lose that. That knowledge is with you now forever, right? Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's two types of knowledge that I have come across so one of the cool things about when you transition from being a full-time athlete to a full-time instructor is you have to um, rethink everything that you know because most of what you know athletically is kinetic and these are going to be the two systems that have interplay is going to be the intrinsic which is your brain what you know as well as the kinetic, which is the body, which is the stuff that you don't know, it's autonomic, right? These are reactions. These are good habits that you've built over time. What's interesting is by the time you get to black belt and Jitsu, it's like 10 to 15 years that you've been doing this. And there's so much I would suggest that it's probably an 80 20 split where 80% of all your knowledge is housed Kinetically, where you don't even understand why you're doing what you're doing, it's just it works, and so you've always done it. And it's it's this strange um, autonomic feature where I don't even know that I have put my arm where I just put it until it's there, and unless I cognitively track that it's there, I don't even think about it. And then someone will be like, "Why'd you put your arm there?" And then I'll have to look at and I'll be like, "Why did I put my arm there?" <laughs> well, it makes sense <laughs> now that I think about it. That's an effect right. which stops them from doing A or B. And that's why I put that there. But I have to think to myself. I didn't think about putting that there. It, it was just there for me, right? So it's this weird thing that the more you do it, the easier it gets, but it's not because right. you get smarter at it. In fact, you still have to do the work to go back and, and deconstruct why, you're even, why your body's doing the right thing. Because a lot of these things have been data chunked over time just from running the same experiment over and over. And that data gets chunked in the subconscious more often than it does in the conscious.
0: Yeah. Oh, that makes total sense. Wow. You are a very smart man. I must say, I always (laughs) know this. I'm glad to have you as my teacher in this. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I want to
2: get to that. I I would love nothing more than to hear a story about kicking David's butt on the mat. Oh,
0: it isn't even, he doesn't kick my butt. He doesn't need to. He can just like manipulate me like, uh, butter butt. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's, it's, I'm learning so much. I guess one of the coolest things is the conversation that you and I have been having around energy in fighting. I'd love to uh, have the conversation about that. you know what I mean? Like, why is it so important to preserve energy? And why do people who are initially coming into a match, let's call it, like myself, burn so much energy and you're so tense and you're just push, push, push. The psychology behind that. I found that fascinating. I think the listeners will too.
1: Yeah, well... The simple fact is that you're coming in with a significant disadvantage, not only in the cognitive understanding what the techniques are and what the game is, the the um, game theory involved, but you have literally zero kinetic information. And if that was considered eighty percent of an of a good athlete's <laughs> repertoire, right significant disadvantage where you're basically all you have to work on is what you know in your head. Which if even if that's all I had to work on, I'd be at a disadvantage because that's, right. that's right. the majority of the usefulness of my techniques. And so all you have to do is try to think about what's going on and just like red line to try to stop it, however you can. And oftentimes that does stupid things that allow simple techniques to work even better because you overcommit to something with more strength or more momentum than necessary. And you just get flipped on your head. Um, what's interesting though, to, to take this full circle is like I said, when you get to the teaching stage and you start to deconstruct why these things are, and, and all of the, um, the wisdom built into your, your subconscious that you didn't even realize was there, but it's there to dug up like gold in a mountain. It's just there. And you'd be surprised how much is there if you take the time to think about it. This is what essentially, um, what Sung Su went through with the whole art of war is all of the efficiencies of war translate as a perfect analog to jujitsu? Yes, right. Yeah, all of the best lessons could be applied directly to jujitsu, and I think that he probably got there the same way we did. Is that it came through a dissection of what works best. And in this case, it's in war. And I don't even know if he got all of his insights from war. Maybe it was from other forms of battle, like martial arts, where he said, if, you know, if this works against an opponent, a a full army is still another opponent. um, How can I use this psychology against them? Right. It's using their force against them, uh, tricking them, using uh, ploys, using catch 22s. Uh, A term we use often in jujitsu is... um, Dilemmas setting up dilemmas and a dilemma is two options, both are bad. So if you can set them into a dilemma, they're guaranteed to lose. They're either gonna get swept or submitted, and both are fine with you.
2: Right, right. Wow. That's wow. fascinating. I'll have to read uh The Art of War again. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I mean you gotta get into uh Brazilian Jiu jitsu zach it's, I, know, I mean I, I really I, do. I almost feel bad talking about it all the time because it's like oh it's so Joe Rogan, but the truth is it is what everyone talks about, like. It, it, it provides you with and this is something you and uh chris and i've talked about a number of times true is it provides you with a constant humbling experience yeah because especially when you first get in and i think you have to lose so many times to even become a blue belt which i'm you know i'm on the journey i'm, a, I'm at the base of that mountain i'm looking up up the blue belt uh blue belt mountain and trying to get there and you're just getting smashed like you know, I've wrestled, I I feel like I'm a tough guy. I've been in a number of bar fights. And when I wrestled my uh, brother, not wrestled, but I rolled with, sorry, I rolled with my brother-in-law, he just destroyed me. It was like a complete catastrophe. I had no hope. And he's only a blue belt. And like, it just goes to show you the humbling of, of knowing what you, that you just don't know a lot of things. And I think there's, there's a spiritual component to that. Like in terms of like a What do you you think of that? Like The people who become black belts, you can't become a black belt and be like a horrible, angry person, I feel like. You have to be humble.
1: Well, here's the thing. And it took me until I got to black belt to realize this. And I feel like every black belt knows this after they get there, is you can't really see it. So this is some uh, industry secret. You're going to be able to hear it before you get there. You're going to have to erase this like many (laughs) yeah, yeah. The industry secret around black belt is that there is an infinity to continue on after that. It's almost a trick to believe that that is the final destination right. at black belt. You, now you know everything. Actually, that's just the last belt we got for you. The continuation of your learning continues on as if there are more belts after that. And it's it's an, it's an infinite amount at that point. Like if it, right. takes 10, if it takes 10 years to get a black belt, man, I spent a whole decade to get to this thing. You got the rest of your life at that black belt. So now 10 years doesn't seem like that much 30 years from now and you're still a black belt. Right. but are, are you better than when you were 30 years ago, of course you are right because right. you knew that experiment and that that is really the trick is that black belt isn't really one thing it's almost like an understanding of how deep the well is and. It's interesting to see a lot of black belts tend to wax more and more philosophical as, as opposed to rudimentary. So you'll hear that in a lot of podcasts with black belts is you could talk about techniques all you want with your purple belts and your blue belts because it's interesting to them because that's where they're at. But after all the techniques are... um you know, for the most part, the gross amount of it is understood. Really what comes down to the interesting aspect of the continuation of the journey is the psychology and the philosophy behind it, which is vast. And it speaks back to the journeys that all of the great um, philosophers of old spoke to. You you start hearing and seeing the truth and wisdom through Socrates and Plato and all of these people that are giving you one word, mind-blowing um, analogies and insights that you're like, wow, I, that totally just changed my jujitsu. <laughs> right. wow.
0: wow. I love that. I love that. Well, we got to, we got to wrap up here pretty quick. Um, cause we, we try to keep it under an hour for the listeners, but I just wanted to thank you drew for the role you're playing in my life, for the role you're playing in all of your listeners life. Uh, anyone who wants to find drew he's got the social disorder podcast or on instagram he's got because jiu-jitsu he's also got drew weatherhead on uh, instagram you're all over the place on social media um done a lot of things but uh do you want to leave the listeners with any last piece of wisdom or thought
1: yeah i guess i mean there are so many different ways that i've applied that wisdom we talked about at the beginning about just getting past the first step into the uncomfortable and seeing where it goes from there, being willing to fail after that point and using it as data points instead of like taking it on as um, I'm now a failure. You know what I mean? A lot of people, they, they fear that the most, they fear that they're going to fail and therefore they're a failure. Um, in fact, and this will speak back to the super fight that we were talking about here recently that I, I had, it was a main event match in a, in a tournament, very public. Um, I did very well in it and ended up winning it. But interestingly enough, um, I, it's harder to learn after wins. I had to like, double down and try to dig out the mistakes I made in that match because it's more important to me to know how to do better than I did that time than it is to know why I won because yeah. that's, that's less important to me so I guess that's the major wisdom is even first of all don't be afraid to fail but second of all don't get complacent in your wins because right. they're just at a point as well you know you can um don't don't worry too much about your losses. Don't worry too much about your wins, but don't let either of them define who you are.
2: Treat triumph and
0: disaster just the same.
1: Correct. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks, Drew. We really appreciate your time and uh, coming on our show again today.
1: Thanks, My Drew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TheCadStory. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great our country is.